If you have a Bible this evening, turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 11. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. As you're turning there, let me just say what a joy it is to share with you tonight from God's Word. So thank you for the gracious and kind invitation. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. My style is expositional, verse-by-verse preaching, so we'll read the text, and then we'll walk through it piece-by-piece and apply it along the way. Let's read the text together, beginning in verse 6. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In today's popular culture, The term love is thrown around quite a bit. In fact, I would argue that many often use the term love as purely an emotional term. For example, many may say that I love pizza or I love exercise or, more importantly, I love the University of Kentucky Wildcats. And and by that we mean we have positive affections toward pizza, exercise, the Kentucky Wildcats. And often our affections are changed based on the object of that love. So, for example, if the pizza is bad, we don't love it. If the exercise is too difficult, we don't love it. If Kentucky does not win that national championship, we don't love them. Others emphasize that love is purely, purely an emotional term when they speak of personal relationships. So, for example, some might say, I have fallen out of love with my spouse. Or I have fallen into love with another person woman or man to whom that person isn't married. But I would argue, however, that the Bible does not define love fundamentally as an emotional term. In other words, I would argue that the Bible does not define love as purely a human emotion. Instead, the Bible seems to suggest that love is an intentional decision to do what is right 
and to do what is pleasing to God in spite of my emotions, in spite of how I, how I feel about the circumstances. Yes, love includes emotions, even in the biblical sense. So, for example, the Bible talks about love in the context of joy in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus connects love with hatred. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, for example, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So I'm not arguing there's nothing emotional about the biblical concept of love. What I am arguing is, and what I hope to defend in a moment, is that love is not fundamentally defined biblically as simply an emotion. So I repeat, the Bible does not define love only as an emotion. But here's the big question, right? Does this definition that I'm offering for love hold true when we talk about God's love? And I would say absolutely yes. For example, John 3.16. Don't look at all these texts, just listen to them because I have a variety of texts that I'm going to offer to argue this point. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he felt really good. Right? No. God so loved the world that he acted, he sent his son to die for the world. What about Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. Listen to it carefully. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. And here it is. And in love, He predestined us as sons unto adoption. Did you hear it? God's love moved Him not to feel a certain way, but to act a certain way. His love moved him to choose us in Christ. It moved him to predestine us in Christ. Here, Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great feelings, oh no, because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Did you hear it? Because of God's great love, God made us alive. He converted us. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, he loved us, so he acted for us. Here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we always give thanks for you, brothers, who are loved by the Lord. Now, now how does Paul know that they're loved by the Lord? Well, notice what he says next. Because God chose you. In other words, he acted. He did something that was pleasing to himself. His love showed itself by choosing a people for his glory. You're not convinced. Let me give you another example. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. There it is again. You have God's action connected with His love. 
And then finally, Revelation 1, verse 5. John states that Jesus loved us and he freed us from our sins and made us to be a kingdom priest serving his God and Father. So so God loved us, i.e., he loved us, i.e., he freed us from our sin. He acted on our behalf. So again, the Bible appears to define God's love as a decisive act to do what pleases himself, to do what is right. And I think, you're thinking, what about Romans 5? Well, here we go. I think this is precisely the point of Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. In this text, Paul argues that God has manifested his love by means of the justification and reconciliation of sinners through the cross of Jesus Christ. So let me state it another way. Here's the point of the sermon right here. God shows his love by killing his son to save sinners from his wrath. Notice verse 6. Chapter 5. I have three points. First point is this. God showed his love for us by sending his son to die as a substitutionary death for our sins. Verse 6. First word, for. Let's read the whole verse. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That first word in the text. Let's just dive into the text. That first word, for. Very important. Because Paul is showing us that what he's going to argue in 5, 6 to 11 is connected with what he has already said in 5, 1 to 5. Now here's the question. What has Paul said in 5, 1 to 5? Very simple. Verse 1, he says, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 2 through 5, Paul says, we also have hope as we suffer in this life. Through Jesus. And the reason we have hope is verse 6 through 11, because Christ died for us. So when you see that word for in this text, it's very important. He's giving you a reason for the hope we have, namely the death of Christ. But notice something else very specific about the text, verse 6. He says that Christ died for sinners, doesn't he? While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? The ungodly are the sinners, right? You notice that, that statement? While we were still weak, spiritually weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8, Paul says this, God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The weak in verse 6, and the ungodly in verse 6, or quite simply, sinners. What's a sinner? Those who don't know Christ, who are separated from God because of their sin. Yes, we're sinners now as Christians, we're saved sinners, but Paul is talking about those who were outside of Christ, and Christ died for them when they were in their sin. He didn't say, fix yourself and I'll save you, but he died for them while they were in their sin. But notice in verse 7, 
I'm going to do some application here in a moment. But verse 7. Paul makes a very interesting statement. He says, for, no, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. You know, that was very true for Paul's first century context. In Paul's first century Jewish context, generally speaking, righteous people did not die for unrighteous people. Righteous people died for a noble cause. The righteous did not die for sinners. So you have, for example, this idea in Paul's first century context where a noble soldier will die for the noble city. But Paul says that is not what Christ did. Paul says Christ died for us when we were weak, when we were sinners, when we were ungodly. So then verse 8. Paul says, someone will scarcely die for a righteous man, verse 7, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There's the very heart of the text right there. I think that's Paul's central point. While we were weak and sinful, while we were God-haters, while we were scoffing at God, Christ died for us. And let's unpack that for a moment. The point basically is God shows his love for us while we were sinners by killing Jesus. But here's the question, right? Who are the us in the text? Do you notice that? Christ died for us. Who's that? Well, the us refers to the we, right? Verse 8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who's that? Christians. At one time, Christians were outside of Christ. We were ungodly. We were weak, but Christ died for us. Who are the sinners then? Same answer. Christians. But more specifically, those who have been justified, made right with God, and reconciled to God, by faith, through the blood of Christ. Isn't that what he says in verses 9 and 10? Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from him, by him, from the wrath of God? Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, because we've been reconciled, we'll be saved from his life? So Paul is telling us, I think, in verses 6, 7, and 8 that Jesus Christ died for the church of Jesus Christ. He died for you if you're trusting in Him. And if you're not, believe. And His blood will be for you. Well, here's some application. First, I want to apply this text to non-Christians. Because we were all non-Christians. We're not just born Christians, right? We were all non-Christians. So first application is for non-Christians. If you have not repented and turned from your sin and have thrown yourself upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone to forgive you, if you're not doing what those songs said that we sang about, you currently stand under the wrath of God. 
And a great tsunami awaits you. A great calamity of God's wrath awaits you unless you repent and believe. Because Jesus died for sinners to save them from God's wrath. He's God's solution to the problem of our sin. Second application for non-Christians. The cross of Jesus Christ, and of course the resurrection, is God's loud sermon to the world that He has done something to make you right with Himself. God is preaching to you, preaching to you from the cross of Jesus, believe, trust in my Son. For this is the means by which you're reconciled to God. And saved from his wrath. Third application if you're a non-Christian. Trust in Christ tonight. So that you will be saved from God's wrath and justified by faith. Maybe you're thinking, well I need some convincing proof. Here's what I would say. Trust in Jesus Christ first. And then ask God to sustain your faith with evidence. Don't wait to be convinced by A lightning rod from heaven. Because God's lightning rod is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second application for Christians. First was for non-Christians. Second for Christians. There is no doubt. There is no doubt that God loves you. Maybe, Maybe you're like I am sometimes. And you begin to wonder because of circumstances. You begin to wonder. Does God really love me? Maybe you're having a difficult time physically with health issues. Or, or maybe you're having a difficult time with employment. Or, or maybe you're just frustrated. And you're questioning as a Christian, does God really love me? Well, the answer is yes. There is no doubt. How do you know that, Jarvis? Because he killed Jesus. He showed his love for you by offering his son to take your sin. Second application. Christians, Jesus Christ has taken the wrath of God for us that we rightly deserve, and he absorbed it on the cross in our place so that we would be saved. The reason why we stand before God justified is because Jesus Christ functioned as a sinner, although he was perfectly righteous. And although we are imperfectly sinful, We stand before God justified. Why? Because God's given to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. So God loves you because he offered his son to save you from his wrath. So that's the first point. First point is God showed his love to the world by offering Jesus Christ to die as a substitute for our sins. That's good news to me, but it gets even better. Second point, God showed his love for us by justifying us by faith. My points are long, by the way. I fail all the preaching class rules. All my points are long. God showed his love for us by justifying us by faith, reconciling us to God, and guaranteeing salvation from his future wrath. 
by means of Judas' death. Now that will become hopefully more clear when we look at verse 9. Let's read verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Let's go ahead and just read verse 10 too. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Did you notice? Did you notice? In these verses, Paul mentions three benefits that come to those for whom Christ died. Three benefits because of the death of Jesus Christ. Justification, reconciliation, and salvation. Let's unpack each one. First, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved from the wrath of God. What does justification mean? That's a loaded question. But at least two things, I think, can be said here about justification. One, it simply means that God declares sinners to be in the right by faith based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So in other words, if you imagine God's law court, and God's the judge, and we're guilty, we're guilty. But when we stand before God, God looks at us and says, you're not guilty. That's justification. We're not guilty because Jesus died for our sin, and we've united ourselves to Jesus by faith. And God has paid our debt through the righteousness and through the blood of Jesus. So we're therefore justified. I could defend this in a variety of places, but a couple of places I think might be helpful. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Notice how Paul mentions justification in verse 20. He's just made this very tight argument in the first three chapters of Romans. How basically everybody is going to hell. Jews are not off the hook because they received the law from Mount Sinai. And Gentiles are not off the hook because they didn't receive it. Because here's Paul's argument. God demands obedience. And nobody has perfectly obeyed. So therefore, listen to 320. For by works of law, no human being will be justified, and here it is, justified in his sight by the works of the law. In other words, what Paul is saying is nobody, not a Jew or Gentile, will be justified by God when they stand before him on the last day by what they do. Because no one does enough. But rather, verse 24 of Romans 3, Jews and Gentiles alike are justified, how? Justified by God's grace as a gift. They're made right with God by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So so how are we justified? Through Christ. By faith. So that's the first thing I'd say about justification. It simply means, there went my notes, ignore it, sorry. It simply means to be made right with God because of what Christ has done. The second thing I'll say is this. This is very important. Justification 
is a future verdict that has invaded the present age. Here's what I mean. Justification most of the time in Paul is, is spoken of as something that has happened right now in this life. We have been justified by faith. God has declared us to be in the right by faith. But there are at least a couple occasions where Paul says we will be justified. So, for example, Romans 2.13. Paul says if you do the law, and nobody does, you will be justified. Romans 3.20. No one will be justified by doing the law. It's a future verdict. It's a verdict that God will give when we stand before him. But that verdict has invaded this age. So I can say right now, because I'm trusting in Jesus by faith, I am justified. And I don't need to live in ambiguity about it. I don't need to wonder until my death, am I really justified? No, I am justified. Why? Because of Christ. Because of his work on the cross and God's work in me to unite myself to Christ by faith. And then one final point about justification. Third thing I'll say is this. Justification also means God has transferred to our account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. It's not as though we're justified because we do some good things and God says, okay, I will re receive you. We are justified purely based on God's work for us in Christ. Christ perfectly obeyed God's law for us, died as a substitute for us, and by faith in Christ, God reckons to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, it's like this. It's like if someone came to me and said, Jarvis, I'm going to pay off all of your school loans. I would say, Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. They pay off my school loans. They don't have to do that, but they do it out of love. They transfer to my account their money to pay my debt, but to a greater degree. God transfers to our sinful account the righteousness of his son. Let me just defend this quickly. Chapter 4 in Romans. And we'll come back to chapter 5 here in a moment. Chapter 4 in Romans. Listen to verse, verse 6. Or actually, let's pick it up in verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted. That word counted, that's, that's the language of crediting. The one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Let me tell you, when I get my paycheck from my school where I work, I deserve that money. I work for that. It is, in one sense, a gift from God, but I work for that. But, but, so Paul is saying, when you do something, when you work for something, you deserve a wage. But that's not justification. Keep reading. Verse 5. And the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, same term Paul uses in Romans 5, 6. His faith, and here it is, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, Paul says, your faith is reckoned to you as righteousness. You're a union with Christ. Receives the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. But notice he's not done yet. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one, 
to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's justification. So the first thing I want to say in terms of application here is that you know God loves you because he has decisively acted through Jesus to justify you if you believe. And if you don't believe, you know God loves you because he's offered his son to save sinners, and you are a sinner. So believe and participate in God's love. But the next thing in the text, next thing in the text, he he talks about Jesus' blood and reconciliation. Still with me? Still with me? We're just walking through the text, right? We're digging in, aren't we? He connects Jesus' blood with reconciliation. Verse 9. Let's read it. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. But particularly verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled will be saved from his right? All right. Jesus' death justifies us by faith. That's what Paul means by the blood of Christ. And Jesus' death reconciles us to God. So let's talk about reconciliation. What does that mean? It means, quite simply, that we hated God before we had faith in Jesus Christ. You say, Jarvis, I did not hate God. Yes, you did. We were little God-haters when we were conceived. And we came out hating God. And by the mercy of God, He saved us by His grace if we believe tonight. So we hated God. We were God's enemy. And He was our enemy. There was a righteous hatred, hear me carefully, a righteous hatred that God also had for us. Psalm 5, right? God hates all who do iniquity. And his hatred is not inconsistent with his love for everybody. So part of what it means here to be an enemy of God is just quite simple. That we were at war with God. We were hostile toward one another. Let me use an illustration. It's like U of L fans and UK fans, right? Like, honestly, honestly, they just, many of them, hate each other. There's legitimate hatred there for those who are on the different sides of the basketball teams. But but let's just say this. Let's just say all UK fans and all U of L fans said, you know what? Let's just be friends. Let's love each other. Let's show mutual love. Let's, let's fellowship with each other. That's reconciliation. Where there was once enmity, there is now peace. So here's what Paul's what Paul is saying. Feel the weight of it. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you are reconciled to God. It is right. God's our friend through Christ. So you know God loves you because he justified you by faith, but he reconciled you to himself. But there's a third thing here that I don't want us to miss. He also saved us. And I think all these things are are interrelated. But notice how Paul speaks of justification, reconciliation, in the context of salvation. So let's look at it again, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Hear it again in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's resurrection language. His death justifies us and saves us, and his life justifies us and saves us. So let's unpack that. What's salvation? To be saved implies there's something from which you need to be saved. We need to be saved from our sin and from the wrath that we rightly deserve because of our sin. Notice Paul also says salvation here is a future, future reality, just like justification that has invaded the present age. So here's what Paul is saying. Because of God's work for us through Christ, in our union with Christ by faith, He's justified us. He's reconciled us to himself. And we therefore, without a shadow of a doubt, will be saved on the last day when we stand before him in judgment. And that future verdict has invaded this lifetime so that I can say I am saved right now. You know, Paul paints a pretty dark picture in Romans 1 through 3 when he talks about the wrath of God. And he says in Romans 2, verses 6 through 11, that gloom and destruction and devastation await those who don't trust in Jesus Christ. But then he says in Romans 5, 8, God has shown his love. Because God sent Christ to be the solution to our problem. So let's apply this. First application. Christians, don't fear going to hell. Christians, let me say that again. Don't fear going to hell if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, there are many people who claim to be Christians. And they ultimately show themselves not to be Christians by how they live their lives. But those who are really Christians, hoping in Jesus Christ, have no need to fear life or death. And this is coming from someone who constantly struggles with fear. And when I do, I preach to myself this verse. God has saved me from his wrath. So I don't need to fear going to hell. You know, when you wonder, when you wonder, have you done enough to be saved? The answer is, no, you haven't. So cling to Christ and don't fear hell. If you're hoping in Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are hoping in Jesus Christ and you feel, conde- feel condemned, that is the devil. You need to remind yourselves of texts like Romans 5, 6 to 11, Romans 8, 1. You need to preach to yourself the gospel. Second application, when you doubt your salvation or when you doubt God's love for you, don't look to yourself. That will only drive you in further despair. Look to Christ. When you're doubting your salvation, Remind yourselves of the gospel. I had a friend when I was in college who was godly. 
and believed all the right things. He was godly. And he struggled for years as to whether God could really save him because he was aware of his sin. And unfortunately, he turned away from Christ. Why? Because he kept looking to himself. But when I and other brothers exhorted him to look to Christ, the chains of guilt fell off. If you doubt your salvation, look to Christ. If you doubt God's love for you, look to Christ. Three, God's love for you doesn't change when your circumstances change. Our circumstances, I mean, this is how life is, isn't it? I'm only 33, but this is how life is. There are good times, there are ups and there are downs. But God's love for you doesn't change. Because His love for you, Christians, I'm still talking to Christians, His love for you is grounded in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is certain. It's constant. It's steadfast. I might get sick and die with cancer. But God's love doesn't change. My life may not pan out as I had hoped. But God's love for me is constant. It's not based upon my circumstances. It's based upon God's work for me in Christ. Oh, yes, we feel God's love, don't we? We taste it when we see God work. When we see God bless us with a beautiful building. We praise God. That's an expression of God's love, too. Oh, yes, positive circumstances. But my point is more basic. God loved you even before you moved into this building. Because it was based upon his work for you in Christ. I'm almost done with application. Fourth application. If you want to shield yourselves from the powerful and deceptive darts of the devil, remind yourselves of God's great love for you in Christ every day. I've got to preach to myself all the time. I've got to remind myself that God loves me. And you do too. Because the devil fights against us. And he shoots these deceptive darts at us. We can't see them, but they're there. So you need to preach to yourself the gospel. God so loved the world. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Preach to yourself the truths of God's word. That's my fifth application. How do you preach to yourself? You use truths in Scripture about the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ as ammunition to fight against the devil and his lies. You preach to yourself by listening to to biblical sermons. You preach to yourself by surrounding yourself with brothers and sisters who love the Lord Jesus Christ. You preach to yourself by singing songs that reflect the gospel. That's how you fight against doubt. That's how you remind yourself of God's love. Six, this is my last application. So everything that I've said means that you often reflect upon the gospel by reading scripture regularly in your lives, praying scripture, singing scripture, and seeing scripture. Read it, pray it, sing it, live it out. Third point. And then I'm done. 
God shows his love for us by offering Jesus Christ to die for our sins. As a substitution for our sin. He he took our place. We deserve death. But Jesus took the wrath of God on himself for us so that we could be saved. He was our substitute. Second point. Paul says, we know God loves us because he justified us, reconciled us, and saved us through the blood of Christ. Third, we also know God loves us because he shows his love for us by allowing us to boast in God because of Jesus' work for us. Look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That, that verb for to rejoice could also be translated to boast. We boast in God. Boasting in ourselves, not good for Paul. But boasting in God is good. In other words, just say it this way. God saved, we know God loves us because he saved us to proclaim the fame of his name. He wants us to make him famous. And that's an expression of God's love. That he would use sinners to be the vehicle through which the nations see his greatness. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters at Grace Baptist Church, God has demonstrated his grace, great love toward us in that while we were sinners, King Jesus died for us and resurrected on Sunday morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would work this in us Help us to believe that your love for us is constant because it's grounded in your work for us through Jesus. So help us to latch hold on, to latch hold of this by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.